This is Real Fiction. I'm Lori Messing-McGarry. If you're listening on KXCV or the Bearcat Public Media app, welcome. I'm glad you're here. On Real Fiction, I speak with authors, journalists, and changemakers. I'm looking for overlooked stories. And all Real Fiction guests have something in common. They are grappling with issues, with ethical gray areas, and no easy solutions. All Real Fiction episodes are available on KXCV's public media app and wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find episodes on realfictionradio.com. I have guest profiles and more information about each episode. I'll be back in a moment with today's guest. My guest today is Valerie Friedland. Her new book is titled, Like Literally Dude, Arguing for the Good in Bad English. She is professor of linguistics at the University of Nevada, Reno. She writes a popular language blog for Psychology Today called Language in the Wild, and is a professor for the Great Courses series. This new book, Like Literally Dude, challenges us to think about how languages evolve how the ums and ahs and regional quirks are normal updates. Valerie Friedland joins me from Nevada. What I'd like to do first is ask you to clear up the difference between what is a linguist versus a professor of linguistics. I know you get that question a lot. I do, yes, actually, and that's something that I think a lot of professors of linguistics, of theoretical linguistics, laugh about um, because it's so common. In theoretical linguistics, which is what I I work on, I'm a sociolinguist, so I'm actually looking at two sides of that coin. I study the underlying structure and the history behind the things we do in language. If you're a linguist, you're someone who studies languages. And while I do study languages, I don't study them in any way that's useful for me when I want a beer. (laughs) It's instead... I study them from a perspective of the structure of those languages, what languages have in common, where they different, how languages evolve, and um, things, forces, both social and linguistic, that drive language forward. So it's quite different in that way. That's a good clarification. Now, you write in the book that language is both function and fashion, and it is built to change and adapt. And so some of these verbal trends that we might find strange, we might cringe at when we hear a younger generation speaking them, it's actually very normal. And you tell us that this is really a function of a system, rather I should say, a system of function and fashion. Can you walk us through that? Sure. Well, I think the thing is we have these social reactions to the things people say. And so sometimes it's hard to separate out our social preferences for how people should sound, how they should dress, what they should do, which, you know, especially as parents, we have these strong feelings about, from things that arise because of linguistic and social function and fashion. And I think that's where we get sort of hung up with language. So if you look at the history of English, I think for anybody who has ever tried to read Beowulf or even Shakespeare, 
um, as my, my daughter recently encountered in English class in high school. It is very different than the way we speak today. So it's sort of funny that we get so hung up on the way that language is changing, changing in our lifetime because it's really insignificant when you look at the way that language, that English in particular, has changed since it began in the days of the Anglo-Saxons. Um, it has vastly reshaped its case system so that we hardly have case anymore. It used to mark gender on, on adjectives and nouns. We don't do that anymore except on prono pronouns some. And of course, that is also fatal and new. Um, and it had all sorts of, about, of verb classes, which is why people disagree over whether it's crept or creeped today, because those actually were um, remnants of strong versus weak verb class distinctions from Old English. So vastly different today than it used to be. In fact, unintelligible if you look back to Old English. So the problem with today's changes are that we're living them. Right, they're in our, our moments, our cultural moments, and they're driven by social factors, which has been true of language change since time eternal. Um, that it's underlying linguistic pressures, things like um, inherent tendencies to um, change things to make them articulatorily easier to say or uh, psychologically easier to perceive which for example leads us to do things like shorten words, um, don't you, didn't you? Or it also leads us to add in vowels like athlete just to make them easier to perceive. So those things are natural inherent needs of language to be clear and to be simple because communication has to be fast and efficient. I mean, that's the role of language versus writing. Basically, the premise of the book is that if we take a minute to look at the history of all the things that we love to hate today and the natural courses and forces in language that cause language to evolve, we can step back and instead of being driven by social preferences and social ideas that we have born of this culture that we're living in today, we can see through a better lens, a less prescriptive lens of the history of why language changes and why it's actually good for us instead of bad. Hmm. I, I really love this. Well, tell me how this shows up in your home. You mentioned that you have kids, they're in high school, they're studying Shakespeare, and probably using some of the common language of the day. I mean, is this something that you have you are fascinated by or do you shut it down? Oh, no, no. I'm fascinated by it. In fact, I torture my kids with it. They, they cringe when they see me coming with a question because it's so uncool for your mom to try to use Riz naturally in a sentence. Uh, so they, they tell me, they actually, my friends' friends find it much more entertaining to talk to me about language than my own children, I think, because of course, you know, you never want your mom in your, in your um, space as a teenager. So it's, they can't separate from me being their mom, but their friends find it really cool that their friend's mom is actually interested in the new words and the, the ways they use it. So a lot of times my daughter's on a volleyball team and I'll drive some of the other girls to the practices or to the meets or the tournaments. And so I will listen really intensely while they're talking in the back seat and they think I'm just driving and I'll catch words and I'll say, hey, okay, so tell me about that word, like low key. What, what, tell me how you use it. What does it mean? And so their friends will love to tell me. And of course, my daughter's rolling her eyes. And then I usually get uh, some sort of admonition when we get home that I should never do that again. And I can't help myself. And I do it over and over. So I definitely don't shut it down. That doesn't mean that I sometimes don't cringe um, when they say certain things because, you know, after all, I'm human and I've been trained in the same prescriptivist tradition as everybody else. The difference being that I recognize that's a me problem rather than a them problem. So I, I understand where that emotion 
that sort of social reaction comes from. And I can sort of also step back and think, you know, I understand how language works. I also understand that my children are being innovative and creative. And actually, this is something that they're uniquely positioned to do as as youngsters, as kids, because of the way the brain is is uh, more plastic, because of the way their social networks are more fluid, because of the way that social identity formation is so intense in adolescence. Um, so that this is a very natural process of them growing up. And if they didn't do it, I should worry. My guest today is Valerie Friedland. Her new book is titled, Like Literally Dude, Arguing for the Good in Bad English. We're exploring evolution of language, how it is showing up in our world today, and how to make sense of it by looking at historical trends. Let's talk about the word very. You know, very is a word that even in journalism classes, there are lectures on drop the very in your reporting. And I found a factoid in your book really interesting. You mentioned that in a 1916 editorial, Winston Churchill was taken to task for his, quote, unconquerable fondness for the word very. And you do talk about how words like this are used as intensifiers and there is an evolution. How do you look at the word very? Well, I love very. That is such a fascinating word because pretty much there's no English speaker that doesn't use very in some context and probably a lot. Um, and it's funny that you had mentioned Winston Churchill because that was, you know, a hundred years ago, but then actually Trump was taken to task for using very, very, very much as well. So this isn't new, right? This has been something bugging us for a long time, although most of us use very a lot. Um, and I think the argument that people have with very is that it, you know, it replaces maybe more descriptive words that you could use. But really, it's, there's no miscommunication in terms of what you're trying to intend. Uh, but the fascinating thing about very, and this is really what I, I find very appealing about the story of very, is that very has changed its meaning drastically since it first came to us from Old French via Latin, uh, or first from Latin via French, in the Middle English period. And when we first started using it, it's from Varay in French, which is vrai today, V-R-A-I, is the modern French word for um, the same word. It came and meant true or actual. So you would see, for example, biblical verse that would refer to Jesus as the very prophet, which meant the true prophet. We, of course, don't really use it very much in this sense, although we see a lingering relationship of that original meaning to days when we say things like on this very spot or at this very moment, which doesn't mean extremely. Instead, it means actual or true or exact, which really harkens back to the original meaning of very. But over the centuries, as early as the 14th century, in fact, when it was still had that meaning of true or actual, we see it used in a subtle way to mean something that could be mistaken as extremely or could be construed as extremely rather than very. And usually what happens when we see change occur is these really subtle shifts in meaning happen over time. So they're not really noticed until finally they're so noticeable because they're so different. Yes. And I think the point that is so important to remember is that these changes happen subtly over centuries. Mm -hmm. And then they show up in our world and we make a big deal about them. Right. Well, let me ask you about this. Um, if you had to look at this question, 
what would you say? Which coast in the United States, California, New York, like East Coast versus West Coast, is there a region of the United States that has taken the lead in influencing language or linguistic trends? Well, I think it depends on what period of history you were talking about. And, but I would say in contemporary times, uh, definitely the West Coast has been very influential. If you think of a lot of the words that we find populating our teenagers' talk, it's kind of California in its origin. And in fact, if you've ever watched Saturday Night Live, they have a, a, a sort of um, spoof called the Californians that is very much driven by language. I don't know if you've ever seen that. That. If you if you just Google the California Saturday Night Live, you'll find it, and it's pretty funny. And so it has this spoof of how Californians use language in this really odd way, and they sort of over-articulate their vowels, and you know, or they they do this crazy language stuff. So I think that shows you that uh, social identity is so really intimately tied into the way we use language. And I think in our our American sort of imaginary landscape these days, California is sort of novel and different and exotic, and especially with young people, very attractive. So Hella or Heka are great examples of intensifiers that are novel. And so, you know, if you if you want a new intensifier instead of very, how about Hella? <laughs> yes, I, I have hear, heard that. Let's hover on California for a moment. This is something that comes across in the book really well. There is a term called vocal fry. Maybe everybody doesn't know what that term means, but you definitely heard it. I know everyone has heard it. Probably the most famous vocal fryers are the Kardashians. And that speaks to perhaps the influence of California and other high profile celebrities like the Kardashians and the way that young people are speaking. I wonder, can you describe vocal fry, what it sounds like, and perhaps how the Kardashians are an example of what it represents? Sure. Now, vocal fry is a fascinating area, actually, because it's been around for a lot longer than we think. But definitely California and celebrities like the Kardashians had a role in sort of um, bringing it mainstream, I think. But vocal fry, for those that aren't familiar with the term, is that kind of creaky, croaky, um, irregular pulsing that our voices sometimes do, especially when we are getting to the very end of a sentence. And it's sort of a signal that we're coming to the end of a sentence. So I'll give an example. It would be like, I don't like that, where it has kind of that gravelly sound. Um, and I, I think a lot about that. So that's the type of sound that comes from vocal fry. Now that is obviously over articulated vocal fry in natural speech. It doesn't tend to be quite that obvious, but that's essentially what it is. And vocal fry is actually just a, we call it a phonation type, which means it's something made with the vocal folds in the way that you position them. So it's just a natural um, way of, of bringing on sort of these attributes of speech that are on top of the words we say to give off social meaning. We do a lot of other things that are also phonation types are done with the vocal folds. For example, breathy voice, when I talk like this, that's actually using the same mechanism as vocal fry, the vocal folds to often give off a sort of sultry or sexy or alluring kind of social message. So it's not unusual to use vocal phonation as something that has a social signal, as a social signal, but we just somehow really dislike vocal fry. And I think it's because it has been associated primarily as of late with young women um, and a lot of celebrities like the Kardashians. Um, and I think Zoe Deschanel is the actress that also has a lot of uh, vocal fry in her voice. 
and you know people like Miley Cyrus and other young celebrities have um, popularized it. But I think in reality, it existed before they popularized it. They just made us more aware of it. And then we start to really notice it, something called the frequency illusion, <laughs> um, that once you hear something, you can't unhear it, which is, you know, in many cases, unfortunate for other things in our life. But with vocal fry, I think we've missed out the message of why we do it and where it comes from. Um, if you look at the history of vocal fry research, what you find is actually it is not a new feature. It's just new in, in, in our imagination. Um, but in Britain, in the middle of the 20th century, it was studied widely as sort of a meta-linguistic cue in speech. And it was primarily found in, get this, male speech. And not just any male speech, but upper class male speech. So it wasn't that feature at all associated with women. And in fact, if you look at studies in contemporary British speech, the same uh, the same distribution is found where it's actually more prevalent in men's speech, speech in Britain. And you don't tend to hear complaints about it when it's associated with men's speech. But what's happened is um, starting in about the 1990s, we started to see this interesting pattern where um, female broadcasters or newscasters were using a higher rate of vocal fry in their voices compared to um, male broadcasters. And then a study was done about 10 years later in the early 2000s, where they looked at broadcast speech of men and women and then non-professional sort of speakers, so people that didn't speak for a living. And what they found was in the broadcasters, again, the pattern that American female broadcasters used more vocal fry in their speech than male broadcasters, but in normal speaking voices, in people that didn't speak for their profession, they did not find that distribution. Fast forward another 10 years and you see a study done by a linguist in California among young women and young men finding that young women used vocal fry about twice as much as young men. Um, and they heard it in the perception part of her study. They heard it, the young women in particular, heard it as urban and professional, which is interesting because if you go back 20 years to when it was first researched in American speech, who was using it? urban professional women in broadcasting settings. So that tells us that there is some pressure on women to change their voices to be heard as more professional. And then when you look at the literature on voice pitch, what we find is who do we tend to like to listen to in business settings, in professional newscast settings, um, in our CEOs and our leaders, low pitched voices. There is a huge amount of research in both social psychology and evolutionary psychology that shows us that low-pitched voices are heard as more credible, more authoritative, more dominant, um, more professional. And guess who has low-pitched voices? Men. So women have to overcome this if they want to be taken um, credibly and as having authority in professional spheres. So what's the solution to do this? Well, if you have a high-pitched voice and you're getting sort of the attractiveness bump and the femininity bump from having that voice, which we also see that speech literature suggests that women with high-pitched voices are considered more feminine and more attractive, but you need to take on a professional tone in your voice, what could you do? Well, you could throw in some excursions to a lower pitch, which is exactly what vocal fry involves, because you can't do vocal fry without a low pitch. Um, and so you have this mixture in women's voices now of a normal pitch for women in the higher pitch zone sort of doing an excursion at the end of sentences into this low pitch, and it's being heard by young women as more professional, more credible, ha having more weight and authority, which is actually the same 
associations made with vocal fry in Britain in early research. So I think it's one of those situations where if you actually step back and look at why women do it and the history behind it, it opens your eyes to this whole other way of looking at why vocal fry is so prevalent in our speech. Um, but when we take it just at the moment we're encountering it and we have all these sort of preconceived notions about women's speech and about what women should do and how young women act, we put those social perceptions and those cultural beliefs about women onto the speech feature they're doing without actually understanding what really motivates the way they're using this new feature. Yeah, you do a great job in the book of drawing that gender line and explaining how it shows up in the business world and in pop culture. And I want to re remind listeners that my guest today is Valerie Friedland. We are discussing her book, Like Literally Dude, Arguing for the Good in Bad English. You talk in the book about the word they. Uh, it is part of a pronoun debate that shows not a lot of signs of slowing down. How are you, as a linguistics professor, looking at the word they as a singular pronoun? What's really happening with this word? Is it cutting across generational lines? Where, where are you seeing this going? Well, um, you know, of course, we often find that it's older speakers that are sort of more resistant to language change, partially because they don't tend to be as innovative, right? They're sort of tied to the features they use. And also because, and this is what I think is really interested about, interesting about the research on singular they, also because we actually um, learn grammatical forms and we learn speech sounds with information about how they should fit into sentence structure and word structure. And so there was there's a, a linguist, Kirby Conrad, who has done actually for his for their dissertation, uh, excuse me, they researched the use of singular they as a non-binary form in particular, but in, in various different settings of, of how they were used or framed in a sentence. So you can go from what's called an epicene use, which is where it's an indefinite um, antecedent, meaning that we don't really know who we're referring back to. It could be a man, it could be a woman, it could be someone not identifying as either, it could be five people. Um, everyone is a good example, or someone, or somebody, um, some people. All of those are epicene situations if you're using a pronoun because you don't have a gender specified on that topic. So if I said everyone loves their mother, um, that's a good example of using singular they in an epicene situation. Um, and what we he what they found was I'm sorry I, I have to get myself my own head around this. It's a problem that I think all, a lot of us have when we when we're older and we have a sort of grammatical programming of a certain type. But it's our job to try to fix that by practice. So I'm going to put that into practice here. So they found that um, when you looked at how sentences were worded from a very epicene indefinite non-specific use such as everyone loves their mother to one that had a proper name that gender is usually specified so a word like a name like kelly or valerie a lot of times what we find is um, older speakers might have those names programmed with gender in their learning of that of that word so it's part of the grammar of of how we have constructed sentences that when we have a subject we have grammar specified with that subject. It's, it's sort of part of what we have cognitively going on in our head is that they're, they're programmed with this certain gender specification. So if you have a uh, sentence like, Kelly loves their coffee, that was generally less well-received grammatically in terms of grammatical acceptability um, than a truly, non, a truly epicene um, or non-specific use like everyone loves their mother. And this was particularly true with 
millennia after people after the millennials i'm not even sure what we're called boomers maybe <laughs> you know if you're a millennial or older this had more, you had more problems in processing they used when it was in a non-singular or non-specific uh, way if you were born a millennial or, or born um, after that it didn't seem to bother you as much so there certainly is a generational divide and this is probably just because of our experience and what we're learning when we're learning those forms so if you're born you know, 20 years ago, they is used much more frequently in a non-binary or non-specific way. And therefore, you don't necessarily have the same programming that they can't be, um, can't be singular that we do later on. Whereas adults that are born later than that, I'm going to be very polite and not put myself in that category, but my aged adults <laughs> um, tend to have more difficulty processing this because it is built into their grammar and they weren't as familiar with it. They have a different grammatical setting. But what we do find is people can actually reprogram their grammatical settings. Um, we learn to do this all the time as we age. We simply change you know, through practice. If we start practicing a new word, if you learn a new word and you practice it, you'll be better at using it. The same thing goes with singular they. Yeah, the historical trends are really fascinating. They are leading us right to this moment where we are evaluating and judging people on their language, um, very specific language. And what you say in the book, you remind us to think about that there are linguistic features we're discussing today that really are the building blocks of language. You refer to them as the little black dresses of the linguistic world, and they are kind of a function and fashion going hand in hand. It's a, it's a wonderful book and incredibly accessible given how much research and um, scholarship that went into um, putting it together. So anyone who is in interested in language, interested in why young people are speaking the way they are and the historical trends, this is a great book for you. Um, I'd love to know um, what you are really interested in now. What are you focused on for your next project? Um, yes, actually, that's a fun question because uh, in the world of language, it's it's ever evolving. So one thing is I never lose um, <laughs> things to study. But one of my personal fascinations is with speech sounds and what makes up accents, um, probably because my parents were non-native speakers and very young. Uh, growing up in the South, I heard a lot of comments on the way they spoke. So people would often say things about the way my mom said my name because she's French speaking. So she'd say Valerie. And so every time my, and she said that in public, of course, people would come rushing over to ask me about my mom and to copy the way she was saying that. And, you know, for them, I think it was because it was exotic and different. For me, it really made me feel outed and different. So, it, you know, I, I find fascinating how the way we pronounce things really have a lot of social meaning atta attached. And that social meaning can be very different depending on who you are. Um, and uh, anyway, so I'm going to work on a book, I think, for my next project that looks at speech sounds and unpacks them in the same way that this unpacks some of the language forms like like and literally and dude that we don't love these days. My guest today is Valerie Friedland. We have been discussing her new book, like literally dude, arguing for the good in bad English. Valerie Friedland, thank you so much for joining Real Fiction today. It's been so much fun and a great education for me to talk with you about this book. It's truly been a pleasure. Thanks for having me.
This is Real Fiction. I'm Lori Messing McGarry. All Real Fiction episodes are available on KXCV's public media app and wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find episodes on realfictionradio.com. I have guest profiles on the website, along with links to some of the specific things we discuss in case you're interested in more background information. Real Fiction is on most social media platforms. You can find me there. And a reminder that Real Fiction airs on Saturdays, 1130 on KXCV. Thanks for listening.